Hello everyone, and welcome back to MIR Meets. Tamiwa Oalade is a freelance writer based in Britain who writes for a wide range of publications like Unheard, The Guardian, The New Statesman, and more. He recently wrote a new book titled This Is Not America, Why Black Lives in Britain Matter. And it argues that Britain has largely projected aspects of America's racial discourse onto its own self and the way that they see race relations in their own country, even if there are many areas where the US's racial discourse doesn't really apply to them at all. So I brought him on to talk about some of the differences between race as a dividing line in the US compared to the UK, and how we can avoid some of the more reductionist viewpoints on this issue in favor of a more targeted approach to addressing racial injustices. Hope you enjoy. Uh, how, if you don't mind me asking, how's the reception to your book been so far? Um, broadly positive, I think. Um, but maybe, maybe it's just like a sort of selection bias. Yeah. That the people that already like my writing are more likely to buy the book. Um, hmm. And the people that don't like my writing are less likely to buy the book. So maybe it's, it's a kind of selection bias. Um, but yeah, it's been broadly positive. Yeah, and I hope it I hope it stays that way. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> yeah. All right, so shall we jump into it? Please, please, let's do it. Uh, Tom Oladi, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. All right. So I guess we're going to begin with a little bit of context. There was a piece I believe you wrote in Unheard about the way that the some of the George Floyd protests a few years ago, how they sparked some like movements among specific activists um and the way that it affected the world at large so i'm gonna i'm gonna quote you and something that you wrote because i thought it was interesting the nature of the protests constituted a break at a deeper level too a new paradigm shift in racial thinking both in america and across the rest of the world now racial justice is a matter of reflective reflective urgency there's no time to consider national or cultural context. Many expressions of anti-racism look like religious revivalism, any analysis of the complex realities of black people obscured by penance and sanctimony. So I think your like phrasing of like penance and sanctimony is quite apt, but to like talk about your broader point, could you talk a little bit about uh, the point that you were trying to make here? Yeah, so what I was trying to make is that when we analyze the experiences of Black and other ethnic minority people in the UK, there is unfortunately a tendency amongst well-meaning progressive activists to do so in a slightly or even a very strongly hysterical mode. And I think that um, we should try to be as dispassionate as possible in our analysis of the conditions and the experiences of black British people, for example, rather than adopting a kind of sanctimonious, indignant rhetoric, which isn't really insightful in any way, which doesn't really offer us a useful explanatory framework for understanding the distinctive 
and complex realities of black British lives. And, and so the protests um, after the murder of George Floyd in 2020, I felt failed to do what it seeked to do, which is to um, offer us a way of looking at race that is reflective of reality. Because many people, for example, suggested that we should, or white people, quote unquote, should just read more books on race, that they should educate themselves, for example. But I think the only way to educate yourself is by grounding yourself in reality, by grounding yourself in what is actually going on. And I felt that a lot of the rhetoric um, didn't offer a grounded reality of black people. It only offered um, a kind of sanctimonious rhetoric, um, which, which seemed to stigmatize white people essentially, which seemed to reduce the complex realities of black people into something flat. Yeah, but like, I guess um, to talk about your point as it relates to like black British people, you have this, I'm going to quote you again, because um, I thought this quote was specifically very interesting. To understand the experience of black Britons, it is not only necessary to grasp how different their history is from that of black Americans. We need to understand the diversity captured by the label black British. For example, Around two out of every three students with Congolese or Somali origins get free school meals, a standard indicator that their parents are poor. Among students with Nigerian or Ghanaian origins, only one in five do. It is also noteworthy that Black Caribbean students are twice as likely to be excluded from school as Black African students. So <laughs> first of all, I, I apologize if I mispronounce any of those. Um, but second of all, like you, you mentioned how like a lot of the, these types of activism often like collapse like different aspects of like blackness into one, where sometimes it's important to like weigh these distinctions because it'll help us like target um, the needs of any specific demographic. Within the context of Britain, could you elaborate on um, that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, if you genuinely care about the inequalities in our society, then you would be interested in the best way of trying to address those inequalities. And I think the best way is by specifically analyzing the groups that are actually disadvantaged in society. So for example, as, as you mentioned, black Caribbean pupils in schools are more than three times likely to be excluded from schools as black African pupils. So rather than making a generalization about the experiences of black people in the education system, I believe we should focus on the black communities that are actually struggling. And so I favor an approach which uses terms like communities, which emphasizes plurality rather than singularity. Because I feel that, and it's obviously true that the experiences of ethnic minority people are not all the same. This is why I'm also skeptical about terms like in the UK, we use a term called BAME, B-A-M-E, which stands for Black Asian Minority Ethnic. 
And although I understand why this tendency to homogenize and to simplify the experience of ethnic minority people exists in the first place, it's a way of trying to address racism in a very rhetorically powerful way. But I feel that, again, if we generally care about the disadvantages in society, we need to consider that race is not the only factor in explaining inequality. There are other factors that explain inequality. You also need to consider class, for example. You need to consider culture. You need to consider geography. You need to consider religion. All those, all these aspects explain um, a person's multifaceted identity. And I feel that if we focus simply on race to the exclusion of everything else, then we can't actually become a more fairer and a more equal society because the only way that we become a fairer and more equal society is if we incorporate all the other elements that might explain inequality. Yeah, and I think that's that's also an important distinction because you made a guest appearance on The Good Fight with Yasha Monk where you talked about how like there are like certain things that people perceive to be like the main social dividing lines. Like in the US, it might be race. But in like the UK, in your experience, class was a bigger dividing line when you were growing up. So could you talk about some of your experiences in that regard? Yes. Um, so in that podcast, I mentioned the fact that I went to a state secondary school, um, a comprehensive school in Southeast London. Um, and I said that Amongst the ethnic minority kids in the school, um, the white working class kids were friendly with ethnic minority kids of all class backgrounds. And the white middle class kids were friendly with ethnic minority kids of all class backgrounds as well. But the white working class kids were not friends with the white middle class kids. And this was something that I only truly realized in retrospect. And coming to the realization of this, I think, reveals one of the most important facts about inequality and disadvantage in British society, which is that class is still one of the main social dividing lines in British society. And I feel that all too often, class is not incorporated into discussions about inequality and, and discussions about identity. So I think in the UK, class needs to play a more central role than it is. Yeah. But would you say that, like, when it comes to these discussions surrounding race and class, do you think that, so, like, for example, when when you, like, argue for a much more targeted approach with, like, the differences between specific Black demographics in the UK, like, let's take uh, elite institutions like colleges, for example. Among Black British people, do you think there are some demographics that are overrepresented and some demographics that are underrepresented because of, like, disparities in terms of class representation? Yeah, I, I think class does play some role in, in the fact, for example, that Black African people are, are, are more likely to to be um, overrep to, to more, more more likely to attend the top universities. But I would also say it's not simply um, it's not simply class that explains the um, divergent experiences of Black people in the education system, because even working class Black African people tend to do better than working class 
black caribbean people when it comes to education so i think class is of course one important element but i also think we need to consider factors like culture family formation the stability of families for example and also like a kind of culture of striving which which i think is found in um many immigrant african communities because i i think um and i think the reason for this is because frankly put um black african communities are more newly arrived in the uk than black caribbean communities so up until about 25 years ago the majority of black british people were black caribbean people but over the past 25 years there's been a massive influx of immigration which has totally transformed the demographic makeup of the black british population and and i think that with this the particular cultural experiences of black african people are often very different um and i think that relates to education as well so of course class does play a role but it's also things like culture and family formation and also i i think when we discuss these social phenomena we we also need to um not fall into a kind of statistical reductionism by which i mean that this data um is it can it only explains broad generalities of course the, the, because there, are, there there's also a lot of individual variation as well and i also want to stress the fact that race culture religion any form of identity net can never fully capture the irreducible unique individuality of any person yeah and i think it's it's interesting to note to like for example if we were to go back to say some of these activist types and the way that like they would approach the issue do you think that some of that may have like trickled into the way that people across the world ended up sort of projecting an American experience onto themselves. Like, for example, in the aftermath of the George Floyd protest, did you like, did you see like some of your like friends and family in the UK sort of begin to like transplant like a a unique American idea of racial issues onto like the way that they saw racial issues in their country? Yes. And I think the, particular incident that prompted me to write my book um which is titled this is not america by the way i need to put that in <laughs> um, the particular incident that prompted <laughs> yeah. me to write it um it was um in the summer of 2020 i saw some young british anti-racist people using the term bipoc now the term the term bipoc stands for black indigenous people of color and that term would make perfect sense in the context of america because of course america has historically um oppressed and discriminated against its various indigenous native american communities but a term like bipoc doesn't really make any sense if you're coming at it from a progressive left-wing point of view because a term like BIPOC for example or using or I should say using the term indigenous in a UK context carries with it a more far-right resonance it's the kind of thing you would expect 
fascists to use uh, to talk about protecting the indigenous communities of, of the UK. And I think this was the starkest illustration of something that I had started to notice before, which is that many of us have unthinkingly internalized an American way of thinking and looking at race. And I feel that we should look at race in the UK through a UK perspective, through a perspective that emphasizes the UK's particular history, the UK's particular cultures, the UK's particular norms. And I think that any analysis of social phenomena needs to take into account particular contexts. I think it's absolutely crucial because without that, we would only get a partial, distorted, or even in the case of BIPOC, completely useless mode of analysis. Yeah. So like when it comes to how you saw a lot of people internalize the U.S.'s racial discourse as a way to view the issues in their own country. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. But do you, like let's let's try to walk through this a little bit, because you mentioned that when it came to the, the whole thing about the U.K. and how one of the greater dividing lines was class, you mentioned something that I thought was interesting, which is that you you actually didn't really like notice it or like like in a conscious way until later on so maybe mm -hmm. this is the sort of thing where um like when you grow up you have like a lot of these like issues relating to identity where like they exist and they're a part of your lives but they're not that salient and the fact that they're not that salient maybe it means that like when something like for example the george floyd protests happen it's very easy to like internalize like so, like some other countries' way of viewing race because you haven't mapped up out a clear framework for yourself. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think I think that's true. I, I think what I would also say is that the Black American population is more historically stable than the Black British population, and I think this this explains what I you're trying to get at because from the time America became an independent republic in the late 18th century till today. The share of the population that's been black has been between 12 or 13% to about 19%. Whereas the current UK population, the current UK black population is 4%. And 4% is the highest, highest it's ever been. So frankly put, there has always been a sizable minority of America's population that's black. And there's always been far more black American people than black British people. And, and this explains, I think, why the American way of looking at race has dominated uh, people in the UK, because the Amer black American population is just far more prominent. But I also think the other reason is because this is symptomatic of a wider cultural issue, which is that we, we don't only view race in the UK through an American perspective, but increasingly, I think we view cult culture and politics more generally through an American perspective. And I think this, this can be explained by the basic facts of us sharing the internet with America. So anyone that uses social media 
shares the internet with America. Yeah, and I think like this relationship to America is very interesting. And I think it's also interesting because you try to make the distinction in your book that like this is like your the arguments you're making, they're not inherently meant to be anti-American. Like you might criticize the way that people have sort of mapped an American worldview onto other countries, but that isn't meant to be anti-American. So could you elaborate on the ways in which it's possible to like see like a group or in this case, a country as like a dominant force that is in, in this case too influential in terms of the way that people view other countries, but is not meant to like be against like certain ideals from that country, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes complete sense. So, book is not anti-American in any sense. One could argue that it's it's pro-American because many of the thinkers and the writers that I cite in the book um, that have most influenced me are Black American th- writers and thinkers. So, for instance, Ralph Ellison or James Baldwin or Albert Murray. And uh, what I would say is that. I admire those writers, but I admire them precisely because they acknowledge the fundamental relationship between a black American identity and a wider American identity. And what I'm doing is I'm just applying that very same underlying principle to a British context. So what I'm trying to do is to affirm the relationship between a black British identity within the wider cultural context of a British identity. And I feel that that's the only way that we can affirm the irreducible dignity of every black British person, not to see them as this abstracted black identity, but to root them in a very particular context. Yeah. And the whole idea of like not reducing them to like some like singular idea of blackness to what extent do you think some, like, I, I've struggled into trying to figure out how to phrase this question, but I'm going to try to give it a shot. Do you think some of your friends may have internalized that, like, reducibility within themselves? Like, maybe they've started to, like, see themselves, like, in that sort of, like, singular Black way without recognizing some of their own, like, unique differences from other demographics? Possibly, possibly. But what I would also say to that is, is um, there is increasingly, I believe, a unique Black British identity, which can't be reduced to Blackness, but is something that is fundamentally British as well. It's something that can't be understood without a wider British context. And I think this increasingly emergent Black British identity is mediated through things like sports, music, TV, and also the very way that many young Black British people speak. So there is an emerging dialect. So it's not simply spoken, for example, by Black British people, but it's also increasingly spoken by British people of all ethnic backgrounds. It's something, again, I have to emphasize that can't be understood without seeing it within a wider British context. So even though there is, I I believe there's a tendency amongst some young black British people to affirm their race almost to the exclusion of everything else, the very nature 
of black British identity or black British identities to use the more appropriate plural designation is that it's connected very deeply to a British context. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Like trying to affirm like this, indi- like not individualistic, but like unique black British identity where a lot of it comes from their roots within the country. But so to segue into like, this is something that you touched on like at the very beginning of our conversation, but I think I want to unpack it a little bit more because I think it's kind of fascinating. So you wrote this piece in The Guardian and there was one part where you made this distinction where you like when we were talking about those activists and like you get you you talked about how like some of them might argue that like anyone who is white is privileged and racism only affects people of color. But I'm going to mm-hmm. quote you now, quote, the problem with this view is that there are certain minorities who are seen as white and yet experience prejudice, unquote. Uh, could you elaborate on this a little bit? Yeah. Um, so I wrote this column for the Observer newspaper in the UK. And I argue that even though that there is a tendency to, when we think about race and racism, to view racism as the only thing that affects black and brown people, this tendency obscures the fact that certain ethnic minority groups that are often seen as white also experience racism. So I mention in my column, Jewish people, traveler, Roman, gypsy communities, and also Irish people. Because of course, one of the strange things about anti-Semitism is that it's a kind of racism often where it's not about seeing a group of people as inferior, but seeing them as, as a conspiracy basically a conspiracy um, seeing a group of people as as more powerful than the rest of society anti-semitism is uh, a form of conspiracy theory and this 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 column that i wrote caused a bit of controversy because a black female labor party mp in the uk called diane abbott responded a week after the column was published writing in a letter to the newspaper that even though Jewish people, Irish people, and traveler Roma communities experience prejudice, they don't experience racism. And she mentioned, for example, that Jewish people were not forced to sit at the back of the bus in pre-civil rights America, and Jewish people were not discriminated against in apartheid South Africa. But what she forgot to mention is that Jewish people also experienced the greatest genocide of the 20th century. And I think many people would would, would sort of say that anti-Semitism isn't really a form of racism. It's a kind of religious prejudice. But those people would be wrong because even atheist Jewish people, even non-observant Jewish people experience anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism is a form of racism precisely because the people that despise Jewish people view Jewish people as a race. They view Jewish people as a distinct racial group that is malevolent. That is why precisely anti-Semitism is a form of racism. And this is also true of racism against any other ethnic minority group that's a seen as white 
because these ethnic minority groups are seen as a distinct racial category that should be demonized. Yeah. So I guess, um, so I guess when it, when it comes to like your characterization of how, like how, for example, how you see white people and, and how you want, you think it would be best and proper for them to view themselves. Um, could you elaborate on, for example, your idea of what the Kafka trap is and what that has to do with white feminism? <laughs> Anyone that's familiar with the work of Franz Kafka will know that there is often a bit in his short stories or his novels where the character feels trapped by the sense that whatever he does will always result in something more negative um, than what happened before. So there's no way of escaping the position that he is in. And so applying that term to white feminists, um, which, which is often now seen as, as a kind of hateful group for some reason. If white feminists, for example, emphasize the fact that they care about the experiences of black and ethnic minority people, they will be seen as white saviors. But if they do not go out of their way to show solidarity to black and ethnic minority people, they will be equally denounced as white feminists that are just indifferent to the sufferings of ethnic minority people. So white feminists are damned if they do and damned if they don't. Because if they show interest in the experiences of black and ethnic minority people, they are denounced as white saviors. But if they do not show interest in the experiences of black and ethnic minority people, they are equally denounced as white feminists that are indifferent to the suffering of people of color. Tom Oalade, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.